this idea that we are created in beauty, that we're created in the image of God, and um, we're created as God's children, and that is our primary identity, is as children of God, and as children of God, we are created in, in beauty and beautiful. It is time again to do this, right? Well, maybe. Maybe your phone is auto-playing this. And that's okay. Let that happen too. (laughs) Anyway, welcome to the show. I am Seth, and this is the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Very, very, very excited to have someone that was referred to me by a good friend of mine on the show today. So Pastor Wendy Hudson is on the podcast. So I went into this conversation with the reverend here with very, very, very few expectations. And I absolutely loved where this conversation went. I love the conversation. I love that we circled around blessing and being born amazing as opposed to wretched. And it is, and it is an honor to get to have these conversations. And I'm thankful, very thankful for voices like Wendy's. Anyway, let's get started. Here we are, Reverend Wendy Hudson. Welcome to the show. I'm excited that you're here. Um, And Steve, I'm assuming you're listening, even though I don't think Steve listens to most of these, but Steve put us together. So Steve, appreciate you, my friend. But we'll um I'll, we'll quiz him on it later. We'll like hide a little Easter egg somewhere in the conversation to find out if he actually listened the whole way through. What does he win? Um, I'll buy him a coffee. <laughs> 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 but I don't think Steve drinks real coffee. I think he drinks like that kind of, you know, coffee flavored sugar water. I, I've seen him recently, and it's been like real coffee really i'm excited for him he's grown up he's grown up so well anyway enough ragging on steve he's not here to defend (laughs) himself um so who and what are you sure uh i am oh gosh i mean in the metaphysical way are you asking (laughs) that or like my particular (laughs) social location whatever way you want to go so many ways we could answer that. Um, I guess in my social location and kind of how we got connected up, I'm the pastor at Two Rivers Church. We're a United Methodist faith community in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, I'm also, my other primary identities are as a mom. I've got three teenagers, um, mm. which is very fun. Mm. And uh, I'm all those other things, friend, daughter, That doesn't. Partner. That doesn't sound fun. So I have almost one teenager. Okay. And it's not always that fun. Are you being facetious? Or do I have something to look forward no. to? No. Uh, I mean, I would say it is fun 75% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> so that's like the vast majority. I will say there's probably like 25% of the time. It's a little bit challenging, but, mm. Mm. but yeah, I'll take the 75%. It's pretty fun. Well, maybe there's light at the end of the tunnel. So anyhow. anyhow. I do have an 18-year-old. They're really great when they get to that end. Because they're self-sufficient or because you can threaten to kick them out if they just want to keep continuing to run the mouth. Oh, see, I've been very fortunate. My oldest does not like to run his mouth. 
mm. in a way that is now my 15 year old is an expert, expert at the running the mouth. So. <laughs> at, that's the name of the episode at the running the mouth. <laughs> if we can, if we can like survive 15, we're going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So for those listening, so you and I decided yesterday in a 12 minute phone conversation to have a conversation this morning with about that much prep work. And so that's what we're working with here. But honestly, these are my favorite. You had said yesterday, you know, I'm not sure that this is all that exciting or whatever, but I honestly feel like they are um, because these are the most real conversations. We're not hawking a text. We're not trying to sell a book. We're not, um, we're not trying to get you new members of the church. We're not I don't even know if that's the right word. I'm Baptist. I don't know if members is the right word for a Methodist church, but it probably is. Is that, is that what you call them? We talk about folks in our community. Okay. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, technically membership would be a thing, but um, we're much more about folks in our community. Yeah. One of the best books that I've read in doing this show from like four years ago is called Unarmed Empire from Sean Palmer. And um, he's out in, in Houston. I think it's Houston. But he has a thing where he's like, you know, churches, you just should draw a five mile radius around your church. Those are your people, whether or not they give to your church, whether or not they come to your church. Like, that's your job. Stop playing games. Um, yeah. which Do is, you run a 60 mile radius? Oh, my. Yeah. That's a big radius. It is a big radius. Yeah. Actually, more than that and the entire East Coast and Mexico. What? What is that? What do you mean? We, th- those are our folks who connect themselves to our community are our primary folks are in the 60 mile radius of, of Charleston. And then, um, but we have significant folks all up and down the Eastern seaboard and in Mexico mm. who consider themselves part of our community. Yeah. How long have you been in your vocation? Like, what is that? I've been doing this full time for almost 20 years. Mm. Um, so I, I can trace my call to the first time I felt this stirring or sense to be a pastor. We call that our churchy language, like a call to ministry. The first time I kind of felt that as an idea or stirring, I was in the fourth grade. So Mm. I can like trace, like trace, you know, kind of what do you want to be when you grow up all the way back to the fourth grade. Um, And I've done a couple of other things in between, but primarily have, have done this, you know, my whole, my whole adult life. And so can you give some context to that? Kind of what was your faith maybe when you started or when you got into ministry and what has that arc looked like to whatever you are today? Yeah. Well, I, my parents still attend the very, you know, traditional United Methodist church and, you know, small town, South Carolina that I grew up in, they still worship and attend there. Um, And so I was one of those folks who was like, you know, like almost literally born into the church. I'm Mm -hmm. sure I was like taken to church when I was like two or three weeks old. Um, And so all of my childhood you know, my most vivid, most of my most vivid childhood memories take place somewhere within that building or within that community. Um, the people who like were very influential in my life came out of that um, experience. So I grew up, you know, I'm for those of your podcast listeners, I'm a white woman, straight white woman. Uh, oh, my pronouns are she and her. Uh, I'm a straight white woman and you know, grew up in a very middle class, upper middle class, you know, home life. And that was also my religious upbringing. You know, that's my very mainline, white, traditional. Um, American. American, <laughs> Christian American experience. Yeah, yeah. that was mine um, growing up. And so my religious experience and my connection with God, 
I'm, I, I count myself very fortunate that I did not have any evangelical harm. Mm. (laughs) That has been my primary, my, now that I'm an adult and, you know, at least 50% of our church, if not more are recovering evangelicals. And like, when I Mm. hear the stories of what they were taught or what they were learned or what they, yeah, what they learned, what they were taught, what they experienced, I am just horrified. Uh, You know, and that was not my, that was not my spiritual experience growing up. Mm. Um, I grew up in a very, you know, an understanding very much of like God is love, um, not very much of a powerful God, but but a God of very a God of presence. That's what I would say. If I had to kind of characterize the God of my childhood, it would be a God of presence. As most people, I'm in South Carolina. As most people, you have some foray into Southern Baptist land when you live in South Carolina, especially as a teenager, you literally cannot escape it. Mm-hmm. And so I had that, you know, I had a two year like foray into Southern baptism where I was baptized again, which is a huge. This was scandal. your choice to like yeah, change churches or your. It like was. Your, okay. Yes. A boy may have been involved. Uh, uh. <laughs> as these things happen when you're 18. Um <laughs> Um, but then when I, so I, it was when part of that, the last part of that experience was when I was my first year in college and I had joined the Baptist student union Mm -hmm. at the university of South Carolina. And I was really sensing at that time that I was really being called into, um, to full-time ministry as a profession or as a vocation. Those are like the the churchy words that we use, but like, I wanted to be a pastor. And I was really like feeling that this was something that I was being called to do, that this is what, you know, something God wanted me, wanted for me. Um, and I went to talk to my campus minister about it and they were like, that is really great. Um, you can work with women. And I was like, but no, I feel, you know, I, I feel called to like, to the whole church. And they were like, well, that's really awesome. You can work with children. And I was like, I do not like kids. <laughs> they were like, well, those are your choices. And I was like, okay, time for me to exit this and go back to the church of my childhood. Mm. Um, so, and that, so I then went literally next door because the Baptist um, student union and the Methodist student union were uh, next, were in buildings next door to each other. So I just like left one, walked out, walked in the door um, of the other one. And so I had the opportunity to like claim uh, Methodism. We, the founder of United Methodism was named John Wesley. He was an Anglican priest. Um, and so we called the type of theology that he really pioneered and the expressions, we call that like Wesleyan theology. So I really was able to then claim that particular expression of God's kingdom for myself um, as an adult. Yeah. I kind of came back and making that intentional choice. I know very little about the Methodist church. I've been to a couple of funerals in the Methodist church and I have a good friend um, that is a a minister. I guess that's the right, that's the word I'm going to use in Methodist Mm -hmm. church just down the street. I know her but I don't, I don't know much about the church. I, I honestly think that most people that are, that are not necessarily listeners of the show, or maybe new listeners, but most people, when they think of the church, they have the Jim Jeffries, they have the, you know, a, a model in their head, the John MacArthur of, of the people that are on, you know, the news like, channels. Know <laughs> oh, so that's Dallas, uh, First Baptist Dallas, the, the massive okay. one that on the 4th of July has a uh, celebration of our, of the, of the birth of our, of our savior, the um the AK um you know the, the assault rifle 
Um, yes. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's, as tongue-in-cheek as I can possibly be. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, churches that feel more like addicted to empire, nationalism, uh, yeah. greed. Uh, churches that look a lot like um, Babylon and maybe Assyria or Rome, yeah. although they, they, they feel like they're the, the underdog in those stories. Anyway, what is... Can you contrast kind of like like why there's such a big difference? And then I'd also kind of like you talked about people coming to you with stories of what they were taught. Like, can you name some of those things and kind of some of the issues with them? Sure. Um, You know, I think one of the biggest differences is that uh, they they let me, a lowly woman, be a preacher in Methodism. Mm. (laughs) Um, I would say that's you know, which is really interesting when you talk about like folks who come to us and like what they've been taught or like recovering evangelicals or folks who've experienced uh, significant spiritual trauma and harm. Um, a lot of times they say, one of the things that people are looking for is a church pastored by a woman, or they're very surprised when they see that the lead pastor of this church is a woman. I mean, we are in the deep South, so that still is an experience that is an anomaly. That's more uncommon than, mm-hmm. than common. But it's really interesting that just my physical presence as a female identified person is set such an immediate tone. Um, And also it somehow communicates a level of safety for folks who've experienced trauma and harm that this is not going to be a place dominated by patriarchy, misogyny and militarism. Mm. I think, I mean, it's interesting that just like just having a female pastor for a lot of the folks who've experienced a lot of harm, just just my just my face and being communicates something so radically different than what their previous church experiences mm. had been. Um, but Methodism as a whole, like our Wesleyan theology, is really a theology centered on um, on the concept of grace and understanding. The way that we interpret it and live it out at Two Rivers Church is that we are created beautiful. We are most yeah. I'm wearing our shirt that says uh, "Trans is beautiful." Our kind of predominant tagline is "You are beautiful," um, and so it's. It's on our koozies and <laughs> it's on our, in rainbow, in rainbow. Um, yeah. So it's rainbow, you are beautiful. Um, it's on our t-shirts, it's on our koozies, it's on our stickers, on our car, uh, it's everywhere. So that that's kind of the primary, um, this idea that we are created in beauty, that we're created in the image of God and um, we're created as God's children. And that is our primary identity is as children of God and as children of God, we are created as in, in beauty and beautiful. And the purpose of our human life is in the way that we understand it and the way that we translate it in our particular congregation is that our, the purpose of our life then is recovering that sense of beauty that we've been created in and then reshaping and remolding our life to reflect the life of beauty, grace, love, and hope and justice that Jesus shows to us. Mm. Um, and so the, the kind of the, primary motivation behind Wesleyan theology, Methodist theology, is this idea of grace, that there is nothing that separates us from God, that there is nothing outside of God's grace, um, and that we are called to live our life within it, to be transformed by it, and then as a result of that, to help transform the world into the sense of grace, welcome, beauty, love, and justice. Mm. So to contrast that with what I was taught in my independent regular Baptist upbringing, um, which is it's, it's more conservative than the Southern Baptists because we're, we're oh yeah, yay. 
we're doing it. Um, I was taught more. No, you were born wretched from that first moment of conception. You were you were born to perish, and but by the grace of God, which is yeah. really a bad way to work through Ephesians and Colossians and, and to proof text that into a different meaning. But anyway, so is there no doctrine of original sin um, in Methodism, or is this really more of a no, this is what we do here. And if they're not happy with this, they can try to fire me. Um, well, it's, I can't be fired. That's a whole nother. What? <laughs> Fantastic. Gift of the, <laughs> <gift of> the <laughs> Methodist, uh, uh, Methodist Church. Um, in our historic doctrines, yes, uh, John Wesley, again, who's kind of founder of our movement 300 years ago, uh, very much adhered to the concept of original sin. Mm. Um, and so that is very much present. And you will find, you know, certain Methodists that has that have that as an important part of, of who they are um, and pastors who, who really lean into that. I have personally found that um, trying to beat people over the head and to tell them that they are uh, sinful and terrible and far away from God as their original nature is not very persuasive um, or it might, it doesn't really stick. Um, folks might hear that. And I certainly did, you know, when I had my, again, you know, my Southern Baptist foray, I was really moved initially by the fear of what would happen to me as a sinful person who mm. might die in a car crash on the way home. And, you know, was my sin so great? And had I not accepted Jesus enough that I would then burn in hell and perish forever? Mm. Um, I mean, that was, that was, you know, when I was 18 was pretty persuasive when you're kind of in the midst of all of that turmoil of who you are and what you understand and who do you want to be. Uh, but that, that wasn't, it didn't stick and it didn't cause me to change my life. And that's what I have found. Uh, and most people that I've talked to in my 20 years as a pastor, and especially in the last four years that we've been doing this particular work that that understanding is not helpful, that it's harmful, that it does not cause people to have an engaging, loving, positive, life-changing experience with God. Yeah. Um, so when you preach that on a Sunday yeah. or a Tuesday, whatever, whatever yeah. the day that ends in day is that you happen to do that, because this is a COVID world. And so you can really, right. you can you can do your church whenever you feel like tuning into Zoom. When you say that, what is the response not from your people that attend the the services with you but from the community and from the church at large because that's a big difference than a lot of the churches that i hear preach i went to church um, a few weeks ago in texas when i went back home for a week and i was like ah oh, i li i loved where you were and then it was beautiful and you pivoted to something so awful he took the beatitudes and turned it into something about power which is really impressive. Did really. you really read the Beatitudes? <laughs> well, we he read the whole Beatitudes and then we we stuck on the very first verse and then we ended up in Revelation and we ended up in a bunch of other places that I was like, well, I'm, I don't, I don't understand how, anyway, um, I was respectful. You know, I didn't say anything. I didn't try to pick any fights, but, um, but yeah. So what is the response when you preach, you know, justice and equality and, in, in the in the community at large that you're in? 
It's fascinating because um, I've, I've been in Charleston for 10 years, which is a wonderful gift. Methodist preachers typically move around because of the way that our, our polity, our structure is set up. Um, I, I liken it to arranged marriages. Um, so every year, like our leaders sit in a, like for the state, sit in a big room and they have a list of all of the Methodist pastors. They have a list of all the churches. And then they essentially like make arranged marriages between the pastors and the churches. Um, and so that happens for one year at a time, which really freaks out people who like hire their pastors and pastors stay for a lifetime. <laughs> um, and so usually we stay in a place for anywhere four or five years. This kind of has been typical. Um, and so it's unusual that I have been in one city for 10 years. Mm. You know, the great gift of that, though, is that I've been in one city for 10 years. So I have a lot of relationships, context, connections, from my kids going to school to places that I shop to groups that I'm in. Um, I know a ton of people and not a lot of, it, you know, of course, some of those people come to church, but some of those people will never step foot into our church space. Some of those people consider me to be their pastor, even though they've never, ever attended one of our formal worship services. Mm. Um, some of those folks will, you know, consider us to be, or I'll get this a lot. If I ever were to go to a church, I would go to yours. And so it, it has been a very surprising message. This one of beauty, you know, like walking, we were talking before we started recording about like t-shirts and the t-shirt that I'm wearing right now, you know, it says trans is beautiful. And again, we have this whole tagline, you are beautiful and it's everywhere. Um, probably my favorite story is when we uh, did pride a couple of years ago, uh, our Charleston pride, we had, um, we gave, we had the, we had, you know, our t-shirts and we had stickers and we had a thousand, uh, we still have some, a thousand of these koozies that say you are beautiful. And on the day of pride, we attached um, a rainbow flag to a little card and koozies and we gave them out. Mm. And later on that week, I went into Starbucks and I was wearing my You Are Beautiful t-shirt. And the person who was checking me out was like, oh my gosh, were you at Pride? And I was like, yeah, I was at Pride. And you're like, I love that shirt. Um, and I was, and, oh, and then she's like, wait, didn't you have a koozie? I was like, yeah. She's like, I have that koozie. I was like, that's so awesome. And then somebody who was next to her was like, oh my gosh really? You have a koozie? I want a koozie. And somebody else said, wait, but I want one. And I was like, hang on. And I ran to my car, opened up my trunk where I still had a box of the flags yeah. and the koozies and the stickers. And I brought them into the store. Um, and I gave out a dozen of the koozies and the flags and the little cards, like to both folks, baristas who were working and to just people who were in the Starbucks and who saw them and were like, Hey, I want one of those. Um, to me, that's one of my favorite stories about this message is that you are beautiful, um, especially folks um, LGBTQ community that, you know, is one of our kind of, you know, primary um, constituencies in our congregation, in our community. Mm -hmm. They have, especially LGBTQ folks, queer folks have spent their entire lives swimming in the cultural message that, that you are broken, mm -hmm. that there's something wrong with you, that this is not right, that you are, that people have been told you are ugly, mm. not physical beauty, but just, you know, the attribute of being who you are. And this, and this message and idea that you are beautiful, not because I said so, but because God said so, <laughs> because God made you exactly like that. And God made you in the image of beauty. Um, folks can, 
can hardly believe it. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, the most recent thing I've gotten used to saying is just love is a noun, but that is mm. a, it's pointed at humans, not necessarily yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's one of my favorite, one of my favorite things. Been enough weeks. You know what that sound means? 15, 30 seconds tops. I'm going to be back in just a second. So theologically speaking, for you as a person, what did you struggle the most with as you kind of went through training and whatnot um, to found a church like Two Rivers that is a different form of church? Because most churches have a massive amount of legacy um, and, it, and it handicaps what they're allowed to do. Or, um, yes. you know, pastors are told, you can officiate a same-sex wedding. You can talk about racism. You can talk about white supremacy. You can talk about this but I'm going to need you to tone it back if you want me to continue to pay you to be a minister here. Like I'm going to need you to dial it way back. So what, what was the biggest thing for you where you were like, Oh man, that you struggled with getting into where you're at now? I mean, you hit, you've hit the nail on the head. One of the great gifts of, you know, we started our church. Uh, we just celebrated our third birthday in March. So you know, we started the whole process about four years ago. And the great gift in that we always say is that, um, the only bad habits that we have, we have so much freedom, so much flexibility. One of our things we say all the time is we can do whatever we want. Like whenever we get stuck on something, we're like, what should we do? We're like, okay, we can do whatever we want. Um, <laughs> and it's, that's a lot of freedom. Um, and then also uh, whenever we hit a barrier or an obstacle, we say, this is God's invitation to creativity. So like when then, you know, anytime we get pushback or a bump up against something like, this is God's invitation to creativity and we will rejoice, <laughs> you know? Um, so a way of kind of flipping all that around. And also the great gift is that the only bad habits we have are the habits that we have started ourselves. Um, and we know what they are. Um, and there's, there is, so there is a ton of freedom in, in starting something new, probably the most difficult habit that I had to overcome was language. Um, because I, you know, I grew up in a mainline church. I have been a Christian from the moment of my conception, you know, essentially I was raised in a very loving Christian household. I never had a crisis of faith as such. Um, mm. I've certainly had my moments of like doubt and wondering, but never, but it, those have always been springboard moments. I never had like cratering moment of that. Um, I was seminary trained. I spent 14 years in established churches. So my, all of my language was so churchy, so churchy, so churchy. That was, you know, that's all I've done pretty much as an adult and very quickly realized when we were starting two rivers that um, the folks that we wanted to connect with were people who did not go to church. Mm. There were people who had either been harmed by church, who had said, I'm never stepping foot back in church again, who had never been to church as an adult, who never had any connection to God that they wanted to pursue. We believe that God's always been connected to people. Um, we don't choose that. God's primary way of being is connection with us. We choose whether we interact with that or not. But the biggest thing was having to de-churchify my language. Mm. And um, so the first year that we worshiped together, two folks and I, 
we would sit after every, after every single worship service, everything that we wrote, everything that we spoke, and we would evaluate every single word that we said, every single transition, every single illustration, every single image, every, I mean, and, and say, okay, don't say this, say this instead. You need to define this, not that you need to. And it, I had to learn a whole new vocabulary and it's wonderful. Mm. And it was hard work, but it's how, if there are any pastor people listening out there, really listen to what you say. The best thing you can do is then find somebody who is not a Christian <laughs> and not a church and let them listen to what you say and then have them give you honest feedback yeah. about it. And 90% of the time they'll be like, I really had no idea what you're talking about. This isn't a fair question, but since you're, you know, um, I love these. a, a minute, since you're a minister, I figure why not? So what is the church's responsibility with what is currently happening with the refugees that we have created over two decades in Afghanistan? And I say we've created very intentionally for the same reason that there's refugees oh, from um, the southern portions of North America and the northern regions of the South American continent because, you know, we got to make money down there and we're America, so deal with it. Um, yeah, but that's a different topic, but very similar. What is the church's role and responsibility in the world that we currently sit in as it relates to that? I mean, we we are a people as... Jesus followers, uh, we are people who have, you know, hitched our wagon to a political refugee. I mean, you know, so it's like we, that, that is, you know, Jesus and his parents, you know, fled to Egypt, fleeing for their life from a despotic ruler who was seeking out to kill them. I mean, you know, like then lived in Egypt as a refugee um, until they returned, until they returned back. So we, the plight of refugees is also our plight and the connection that we have to folks who are fleeing for safety is the story of the person who we claim to follow and is the savior of the world. Um, and so in them, we very much see Jesus because their story is the story of Jesus. And so I think we both have a level of responsibility for, um, creating safety and welcome and asylum and shelter, um, you know, as folks arrive here, that's very, very important. Um, and then also I think we can't advocate as well. We, we can't abdicate our responsibility to speak loudly and clearly on behalf of justice mm. and creating responsibilities and, and, and possibilities for more folks to come for more folks to be allowed in, um, one of our folks had just recently traveled to the southern U.S. border, um, the in, in Texas, New Mexico U.S. border, uh, to spend time in some of the um, refugee and asylum-seeking communities there, and it's a story that's not talked about. I think outside of. Texas border communities or, you know, those like United States Southern border communities. I mean, I consider myself pretty dialed into the state of the world and the things that she shared her experiences, what she saw. Um, I had no, I, you know, I just had no idea mm. and it broke my heart. And the hard thing is I can only, I can only carry too closely so many heartbreaking things. Cause then I won't be able to get up off the floor. And I think that's a tough part about being 
a follower of Jesus in the world today is we see Jesus to me the most clearly in those who are suffering and to be so closely tied. We have, there's the whole world is suffering. (laughs) Um, We, you know, we are suffering and bearing the weight of that and trying to discern where do I as an individual, where do we as a community, where do we as a church like place our efforts and energy with those who are suffering is really hard. Yeah. I had an argument with someone the other day that I don't know on the internet. Cause that's what the world is. Um, about, can't see each other to argue in person anymore. So. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't actually argue with people in person. I really only argue with them on the internet, mostly because I think I have time to choose my words and then, and then, but in person, I, I don't have that time and there's no empathy on the internet. You know what I mean? It's just it's different. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I really should probably just delete all the social media, all of it, but I won't. Cause that's the world that we live in. And it can't be used for good. Yeah. But it's still, uh, what's the word? It, it takes a lot of work to do so. Cause you just can't read the comments. You just got to put what you want to put up there and then leave. <laughs> don't even, don't even read, the, don't ever read the comments. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't read the comments for the show, um, which is probably for the best, but that's okay. So no, we got in an argument about, you know, rescuing refugees and, and, and they were saying, you know, we should only be rescuing the Christians that are there. Cause that's, and I was like, you're, you're ridiculous. You're ridiculous. Um, do you know that Jesus wasn't a Christian, right? <laughs> yeah. And do you also know that the, um, Syriac, he, I'm sure he doesn't, but without, um, Syriatic Muslims, like there would be no Christianity today, um, because they sheltered and housed them and, and vice versa. Like there's a, a massive shared brotherhood there of, of love. And somehow we forgot that that exists. But um, for those listening, you should read the work of Vince Bantu if you want to dig into that and fall down that rabbit hole and 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 learn something new. I've heard it said um, by a couple ministers that um, being a pastor in today's church is like managing long-term hospice care. Do you agree with that? And hospice care for like the entity of the church. Um, and so as, you know, new reports roll in, church memberships roll in and Things seem to never really systematically, sis, oh my gosh, systemically, systematically, I don't know which word. We'll edit the right one in. Um, <laughs> change. Do you feel as though that's accurate in, in your experience? I mean, I'm, you know, now I'm fortunate is that I'm on, I'm on the midwife end. Mm-hmm. Um, You're birthing something is, new. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Which there is, I, I do, I have always said like for my whole ministry and you know, for the last 20 years and even more so now, um, I, we can't say post COVID in this, whatever. I don't know that there will ever be a post COVID. No, but in w- whatever portion of COVID that, you know, the world exists in, um, this is the best time to be a follower of Jesus. This is the best time to be in my, in my opinion, to be a pastor because there are so many folks who are not connected to Jesus. And I think it's wonderful. Mm. (laughs) Um, Most of our, most of my colleagues and peers, unfortunately live and serve and work in those hospice connections, but almost the worst kind where people don't realize that they're dying. And so instead of embracing the end of life, and all the possibilities that come with that. Like I had a, I had a guy at one of my last churches who had, was single his whole life, had had um, tuberculosis when he was in his twenties mm. mm. and like spent nine months in a tuberculosis sanatorium. I mean, like this is like back in the day. Oh man. Um, 
single his whole life, never thought he would live past 50. And here he was like 70 and he was diagnosed with a very aggressive type of cancer. So he was like, I've lived way longer than I ever thought I was. And they were like, we can like, these are the treatments, surgery, radiation, chemotherapy. You won't be able to eat that. And he was like, are you kidding? He's like, they're like, or you can go on hospice. He's like, I never thought I'd live this long. Bring on hospice. Let's do the thing. <laughs> Buddy, I have never seen somebody embrace. He used every single bit of the hospice care that was offered to him. He had uh, the music therapist come. He had um, the health care workers come. He had nurses come. He had volunteers come. He had the chaplain. Come. I mean, like every day. Mm. And he lived for six months. His quality of life those last six months were honestly far better than they were the last 20 years mm. of his life. He was like, I'm going to, you, you're going to give me hospice. Fantastic. I mean, he was both feet in and I've never seen someone with a more joyful end of life. Huh, that's amazing. Uh, it was so full of meaning and care and hope and people surrounding him and um, people like living out the folks with hospice, living out their gifts in his life. And he was able to facilitate that mm. in this really incredible way. Um, and so at his funeral, like the hot, the music therapist or the, the music hospice worker came and sang the song that they had written together. I mean, mm. it was just wonderful. Mm. Um, because he knew that death was part of life and that death was not an end for him. He was very faithful follower of Jesus for him. Death was not an end. It was not something to be feared. Instead, it was just a transition point to something incredible. We, as the institutional church are not faithful in our understanding of death. I can only speak to the United, for the United Methodist denomination. I see this lived all the time. We live in nothing but fear and panic and anxiety. And oh my God, we're going to die. And I'm like, are you kidding? Death is fantastic because without death, you don't get new life. Hmm. You don't get, I mean, we are a resurrection people. We believe that the best comes after death. So why are we so afraid of it? Hmm. You know, I, I think if we as, as a denominational entity, as a church in America could live the way that Mr. Jackie lived, that we could embrace the end of our life. We could see that there are all the gifts in it and we could prepare for what comes next. Imagine what our churches would be like if we were like, we're going to give up all of ourselves for the sake of people who've never heard of Jesus or have never connected with Jesus. And we're going to give all of our resources, all of our people resources, all of our past, you know, we're going to release our pastors to go spend all their life with people who are on the birthing end. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to take care of each other because we know how to do that. And we're going to set ourselves up for life after death. Mm. So. Yeah, no, we don't. Um, it's not we, faithful. It is not <laughs> faithful. I want to. I want to lean into that midwife metaphor because I like it. And then the first thought that I had is if if ministers and, and reverends or or whatever pastors are yeah. acting in the role of the midwife, who should be acting in the role of doula? Because from what I understand of that, Ooh, midwife that. is like right up until we go, and then I've got to go to the next birth. Like I'm, 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 I'm qualified to do this. And then the doula kind of sticks with you emotionally postpartum and helps to emotionally and you know prepare the family and yourself and you know so who should be acting in that role? I mean, I think that is the role of the community. Mm. The role of the community is to midwife and to to midwife and doula each other and mm. more out into the world. And so, um, one thing that we've really adopted 
at Two Rivers is, you know, is we have a really flat structure, um, you know, a, a really flat leadership structure. Um, I'm the lead pastor, but but we, we function very flat. We don't function hierarchically um, at all. And we believe that every person in our community has gifts that are necessary, needed, valid, and equal for the building of the community. And so, you know, one person's gift is not you know, my gift as, you know, the pastor, the kind of the, the leader, the one who kind of like keeps us going, setting a direction. I am only able to do that though, because everybody else is sharing their gifts of listening to other people, of helping teach children to read, of developing spiritual formation in our children, of showing up on a Sunday, of setting up of chairs back when we did that thing, of popping onto Facebook and engaging in the comments, of, you know, of giving their money, of saying, I had this relationship that I'd like to nurture, like Stephen here. See, Stephen's gift of introducing the two of us, like that's like, you know, so all of those gifts are equally valid. One is not higher or mm. more important than the other. And in that way, we're all midwifing and we're all serving as a doula at the same time. Mm. No, I like that. So two questions left and then I'm going to run to work. I'm going to let you yeah. probably get back to work. What do you feel like churches need to be saying at church just to be passive aggressive with the with the name of the show? Not necessarily the ministers of the church, but what should people feel enabled and maybe you think necessary needs to be discussed in the coming years? And if not, it, it was it's going to be detrimental to the to the church as a whole, Big C Church. I, I will address American Christianity because that's my context and sure. what I know. Um, and so I would say anti-racism and white supremacy. We especially those of us who are white and white churches, we, that has to be that has to be has to be up there. LGBTQ inclusion, uh, full inclusion, uh, you know, for me, obviously that's not part of who we are. It has to be there. Um, and then also anti-imperialism and anti-colonialism. Mm. Um, and you know, we, we, we talk a lot about intersectionality, you know, we live at the intersections. Um, you know, well, one of our sayings also is like pride is always intersectional. Um, and it's all, it's all, of the, you can't, you can't split out those things because people show up in the space in all of their identities. Um, we don't make people show up only as one identity. People mm -hmm. show up in all their identities. And so as the American church, if we are going to have any, I hate to use a relevancy, but I'm going to use it. If we are going to have any relevancy to the folks who live in the United States in these days, we have to talk about those things because that is people's lived experience. And it is foolish of us to pretend like it doesn't exist. Mm. So for you as a person, when you try to wrap words around what God is, Ooh. what is that? Um, when I use the centering uh, practice of centering prayer, which is usually you pick like one word that you then like repeat or focus on or create. Um, and it, I mean, it sounds, I even hate to say it. It sounds so hokey to say to say love, but not emotion, but not the, like so far deeper than like, all right, nothing Hallmark related, but it's like, it's a love that a parent has for a child that a lover has for another lover in that first blush deepness, you know, when you're first having that warm relationship. Um, 
love that that defies definition and categorization and description even. Um, I'd say that. Mm. Love it. Love it. Those, that's my favorite question of every single one of these. I started it like two years ago. Um, it is, it is my favorite question. I don't know why. I often get more out of the answers of those yes, than yes. the entire episode. Normally, we you know we have a book that we're directing people to. Sure. Uh, 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 so, but we don't have any of that. And so, when people listen to this, and at the end, they're like, "Well, I, I need to, I need to say stuff about this. I need to do something, or I feel, I feel led to try to do X, Y, or Z. Where should they go to try to begin to plug into things that you feel like matter?" Yeah. Um, you can connect with me. I'm Rev Wendy Hudson on all social media. So uh, follow me, connect with me, check in with me there. And then we are also Two Rivers CHS. So T-W-O-R-I-V-E-R-S-C-H-S um, on all social media. And that's also our website, tworiverschs.org. Mm. Um, come and find us. And you too can have your own. You are beautiful. Trans is beautiful. <laughs> um, Jesus is a feminist t-shirt. Uh, you can see our shop, our store, mm. um, That'll work. Or, tote bag, or fanny pack or visor fanny pack. We got it all. Fanny pack. <laughs> our creative director is super creative. Oh, fanny pack. So my <laughs> wife wore a fanny pack. I feel like they did something. For, so my wife's a pediatric nurse and they did something for the kids and she had to have a fanny pack and it is the eighties LA gear the best thing. oh my and she put it on i was like i don't i get why you're doing it but i don't i don't want to know you today i don't <laughs> I, I can't do the fanny pack leave the house separately oh and now my daughter has a fanny pack and i'm Love just it. i'm not happy about any of it um i should send you one god if <laughs> i don't know i don't know about that um Steve, don't get any ideas. Anyway, <laughs> Wendy, thank you so much for coming on and for your time this morning. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Now, I haven't added it up. But there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of podcasts on the internet. And I am humbled that you continue to download this one. If this is your first time here, please know that there are transcripts of these shows. Not always in real time, but I do my best. And if you go back in the logs, you can find transcripts for pretty much any episode that you'd like. The show is recorded and edited by me, but it is produced by the patron supporters of the show. That is one of the best, if not the best way that you can support the show. If you get anything at all out of these episodes... If you think on them or if you, you know, you're out and about and you tell your friends about it or, hey, mom, dad, brother, sister, friend, boss, pastor, here's what I heard. What are your thoughts on that? If this is helping you in any way, and it is helping me, consider supporting the show in that manner. It is extremely inexpensive, but collectively, it is so very much helpful. I am thankful that our world has voices like Julie's in it and countless others. They're a beacon of hope and light. Now for you, I pray that you are blessed and you know that you're cherished and beloved. We'll talk soon. <laughs>